Welcome to Catalyst Power. Our podcast develops solutions to inequities in education and provide engaging discussion for educators, parents, and listeners. I'm your host, Bruce Douglas. And I'm Cabral Thornton, and we want to thank you guys for coming today and joining us. Uh, today we have two special guests, Claudia uh, Medina and Preston Denson. Before we start, we want to set a little bit of context today, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I was reading an article recently in the Atlantic Magazine uh, discussing the merits of Black Lives Matter's uh, history and curriculum, uh, particularly Black Lives Matter curriculum taught in schools. And so it, it kind of opened up conversations around what's the appropriate approach to uh, teaching curriculum in history in schools uh, because there are different sides. On um, this particular article, there was a board member in Illinois who thought that the Black Lives Matter curriculum was actually disempowering to Black students um, because it reinforced stereotypes, it reinforced white supremacy. And from her position, this was not exactly the right thing that was best for the uh, underserved students in her, in, her, um, in her school district. So with that said, I wanna bring in our two guests, uh, Claudia and Preston, and let you guys introduce yourselves. And we'll start asking questions around it because what we wanna figure out um, with the, and the purpose of today's uh, podcast is how should history be taught, regardless of, of ethnic group, but particularly for black and brown and students of color and underserved uh, students, how should history be taught? What does it really mean to have curriculum dedicated to underserved student populations? And then what are the ramifications of the way it's taught and how we can best empower our students so that both uh, uh, non-underserved uh, students are empowered, but also it does not disempower the narrative and the conversation for, uh, for the white or majority students involved. And so with that being said, uh, Claudia, I'll, I'll defer and allow you to introduce yourself and then Preston as well and we go forward. Thank you. Hi, my name is Claudia Medina. Um, I'm a professor at Duhovka Institute um, at Princeton uh, University, um, and I own a school called the Bilingual Montessori Lab Academy. I am a um, bilingual immersion teacher. Um, I am of Colombian origin. I'm from South America. Uh, I'm also a U.S. citizen, and I currently serve on the District 209 School Board um, for the past six years. All right, hi, I'm uh, Preston Denson, and I am an 18-year educator, uh, currently teaching in public schools in Atlanta, Georgia, um, at the Maynard Jackson High School, which is in the Atlanta public school system. Uh, before that, I taught overseas uh, in Kuwait, and so uh, I have some, some interesting perspectives to bring to that as well. Uh, I taught there for four years, and uh, I started my teaching career in New York City, uh, teaching in Brooklyn, New York. So. I've had a chance to see quite a bit in terms of urban public school districts. I've had a chance to see that. I've also had a chance to see, you know, elite private schools with, with highly affluent students. So it's some interesting parallels that I wasn't expecting to see about that. And I would love to share about that later on. Sure thing, Preston. Thank you very much. And thank you, Claudia. So let's start out with, let's talk about history, the way it's taught, uh, context of curriculum. Um, Preston, and, and, and I'll start with you, like, can you, can you outline kind of your approach? You just talked about speak, uh, teaching history in affluent schools, teaching history in Title I schools, teaching history uh, across the world in, in Kuwait. Um, what are some, can you compare and contrast your experiences and, and, and help us really in the context of you have underrepresented students in classrooms who are hearing their history, who are 
forming images of themselves and, and, and who they are and what they represent based off of some of the stuff they're learning in their classroom. Can you, can you reflect upon that and just talk to us about your perspective and how this has evolved during your teaching career? Yeah, there's a lot there. So I'll start with the one part you mentioned earlier, and that was uh, how was I taught to teach history? Uh, so at the teacher training program that I went to at Brooklyn College, um, you know, we, we focused a lot on inquiry. We focused a lot on giving the students problems to solve and having them develop their critical thinking skills and problem solving abilities through using historical documents. And there was a, a, a huge focus on trying to get the students to practice being historians. So how do we examine evidence? How do we make sure that we don't just rely on one source of information and we get information from multiple sources? So some of those key skills, this is how I was taught to teach history. And it's still um, an important part of my, my pedagogy today. In terms of the history curriculum, you know, some of it is some of it is 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 fairly broad. Like there are certain topics in a world history class, you know, whether I'm teaching it overseas or whether I'm teaching in the United States, we're going to study. However, what I've noticed and what I what I try to do is like when I was teaching in the Middle East, I tried to to focus more on developments that occurred in that region, or if we were studying another region, I would always try to do some kind of tie-in to how it would have affected people who lived in the region where I was, where I was teaching. Um, and so here now in the United States, you know, and even before I went to Kuwait, you know, I'm doing the same thing now. It's just, I'm looking at it from the lens of a Westerner who's examining this. So that part is not all that different, but in terms of the parallels, I was struck by some of the parallels, which is this, whether I was working at an affluent school, and I don't know that this is something that is unique to Kuwait, or it could be with affluent students anywhere, but I found that there was, I was, there was a striking, striking resemblance between the degree of entitlement that I would sometimes see with students who were in Title I schools and with students who were from affluent backgrounds. Um, but I mean, for, of course, for vastly different reasons, but I was just struck at that, you know, like the unwillingness in many cases to want to persevere when, when times get tough um, or the, 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 the lack of patience, you know, for the process of learning. You know, so that part, you know, I was, I was just struck at how similar the experiences were. Uh, but like I said, obviously for different reasons, you know. So, so I'll take a quote from the Atlantic article, Preston, if you don't mind uh, reflecting on this. Uh, this. The board member said instead when she came to the, to the, to the Black history curriculum, um, we were talking about this, you know, the different kind of affluent versus, versus uh, Title I schools. She said instead she was confronted with the curriculum she deems disempowering, divisive, and ill-suited to helping students of color succeed in school. Her other point was that not all white people benefit from white privilege in the way that the curriculum taught black history to the white students. So you had on one hand, disempowered students of color um, who, who she felt it was disempowering to her students. On the second hand, she thought it was divisive because not all students 
uh, when it came to specifically to a Black uh, Lives Matter curriculum, not all students um, or, or all white students uh, were, were students of, of privilege. And so she was unsatisfied with the outcomes for the student groups. Based on sort of that viewpoint from that particular board member and, and kind of contrasting what you've seen in, in that entitlement, um, how would you respond and, and, and what are your observations in that regard? Well, so I'm, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but there's a part of me that, that um, wants to push back against that because as an, as an educator, I don't see myself as, as wanting to teach you what to think. You know, my, my, my focus is teaching you how to think. So I, I would think that we, I think we are best served when we are willing to be honest with all of the various aspects of our country's history and, and of trying to avoid using a single narrative to tell the history of, of a country, especially a country such as ours that is really built on the idea of people coming from elsewhere and creating a sort of tapestry, you know, of different voices. So, you know, my, my thing is to make sure that we embrace all of those voices. So, you know, I, I would imagine that the Black Lives Matter curriculum attempts to do that. So in that sense, I would applaud it. But I also understand that the key thing is to study what actually happened. Look at the study that actually, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really big now on evidence, you know, evidence-based thinking, whatever can, and, and about being honest about all parts of the history, even the parts that we are uncomfortable with. And so as long as we are willing to embrace that as a history teacher generally, you know, I definitely think that our students will be better served regardless of where their background is coming from. If we can have an honest conversation and clear up misunderstandings in the way that, um, in, in the way we teach this difficult content, I think that will help us to be more enlightened about how our country has basically ended up in this moment where we are today. Sure. Claudia? Yeah, I'll agree. I agree a hundred percent with the evidence-based thinking component. But, you know, I think there's something that's really important with the Black Lives Matter and perhaps is another perspective. We, um, in Proviso District 209, um, we went through um, looking at how, how it is that we're delivering the curriculum. And because we actually uh, put a, a student advisory and, and uh, well, it's, a, it's actually student academics and student, student innovation committee together to actually look at the whole component of the spiraling of the different components of history throughout um, all the curriculum. Because what we realized is as long as the kids are touching it in different ways and coming back to it, then they, they actually really you know, absorb it and it becomes theirs. What we found was there were some teachers that still weren't comfortable, whether they be black, whether they be white, whether they be Latino, all of them, it was a comfort thing. And so to overcompensate or to um, you know, bring more um, awareness they would do things like teach slavery for six weeks. Why would you want to teach slavery for six weeks? There was so many more things um, to teach about, um, about the historical context, about um, you know, so many heroes, and there were so many other aspects of it that, was, that were so important. Um, so what we realized was we really, really needed to retool the curriculum, not necessarily because the curriculum was wrong, but because the curriculum curriculum was not being delivered equitably 
on and, and many different components. Now, one of the things that we engaged with was to ensure that we had spiraled the Black Lives Matter curriculum into the type of literature they were reading, to making sure that they were being that things were being mentioned in science, in math, in, in so many different areas. And we worked on it, but the delivery wasn't there. So we actually worked with um, bringing in different specialists that were going to um, um, retrain our history teachers and give them assistance and you know actually give them like one-on-one -on -one. so we were having the the phd department from elmhurst college and from uic come in and actually work with the teachers as we're doing all of, uh, as we're doing all of the curriculum writing looking at looking at all the different aspects to ensure that we had equity but in order to do that we needed to do an equity study first and have a whole idea of okay what is the scope of what we're dealing with because here we are in district 209 in proviso we're a double minority district and the moment i entered seven years ago into the as a board member in the district um there was only 42 percent latinos nowadays there's 57 percent latino right and i'm the first latina ever elected to the board and we used to be a majority black um district and now it's um 37% black, which that which shows, I'm sorry, 42% black, which actually shows that there's, it's not that, and we have less students. So what we're showing is that there's a lot of our, our black community that is leaving the area for, for various different reasons. But one of them was education. So what were we doing right and what were we doing wrong? And what was, how was, what was the student impact and what was the faculty impact of this curriculum and how it was being delivered? What was that? So in the equity study, we, 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 we clarified with, uh, you know, very specific data points to make us more aware of, okay, what do the kids think about it? How do the kids feel about it? What do the teachers think about it? What do the administrators think about it? You know, and, and what is the climate? And the climate around that was fascinating. And that's when we started seeing, okay, delivery was actually our, um, well, how certain people delivered it because it wasn't all of them so we had some teachers that were doing an extraordinary job and really addressing the issues for all of our of, of our children and and you know putting all of those critical you know evidence-based thinking components into how they were delivering the curriculum and it was working really well but not everybody was doing that my son who was in the district for example um they never discussed anything um about any of the Latino and you know in in his specific school it was 72% Latino and they, they discussed a lot about African American history but they, there was nothing about Latin America. Um, my husband is actually a war hero from um, Nicaragua and you know they, they discussed the 1980s and the Sandinistas were never mentioned um, nothing nothing that had to do with the impact and there were several students there who um, had you know um, parents who lived in those things and there was no mention so we we I, you know i had to bring that like lived experience also in as a board member and say okay so we're doing this really well um we're we're, we're not addressing this at all so how do we balance it and um so that's where this committee was put in to actually help us come to an equitable practice and to actually touch the points to make sure that we're delivering it correctly and that is a, that is one of the biggest stressors i would say for districts and for a lot of administrators to ensure that the students experience of the history and the the, the acquisition of knowledge um uh, is such that it's not so that you're you're tearing a community down or a student down or an experience down and 
and that is really where the struggle became. And we can talk a little bit more because a lot of things developed after that once we realized that that was a, a really important characteristic of some of the work that we were doing. Can we, can we drill down a little bit, Claudia, and Preston? Sure. I'd like to hear your response too as well. Talk to me about, you talked about two things that I heard there. I heard delivery and then implementation, but, but higher level implementation, how are we deciding on our curriculum? And, and more important, Preston, when it gets down to the teacher level, are you having any say-so in what curriculum you have to put in front of the, or your students, or are they just saying, this is what you have? So from administrative level, give us the, the executive process of how those decisions are being made, and then what you're looking for in terms of training and delivery, and then Preston, from the teaching aspect, do you have a say-so on what's going on? Do you, are, you, are you in this process? And if so, why or why not? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in on that. Yeah, so on my level, once the curriculum is determined, I don't, I don't really have a say. As a teacher, I don't have a say in what the curriculum is. Um, so the, the curriculum is what it is. However, as the, as the classroom teacher, I have full autonomy over what I teach on a day-to-day -day basis. So in that sense, yeah, I mean, it's not like there's it's not like someone comes into my classroom every day to watch what I'm teaching. Um, so if I wanted, you know, just as a for instance, if I wanted to teach a lesson on, you know, mythology and Star Wars, you know, there's nothing that would stop me from doing that. Um, you know, so even though the curriculum is sort of handed down from up top, you know, there isn't that kind of oversight in the classroom that I feel like I am constricted in any way. I mean, I have, I have, um, we have addressed some really serious topics in my classes. Um, and I've even had to, you know, send out uh, advance notice to parents that we were going to cover some, you know, you know, heavy material and that if they wanted to opt out that they had that option. So, um, you know, and I, th I think as long as, as I'm able to do that and cover myself on that end, you know, there's none of my supervisors are going to breathe down my neck and say, hey, no, you, you shouldn't teach that. Just stick to the curriculum. Preston, I, I, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt that you're a great teacher. I personally haven't taken one of your classes, but what you're sharing right now sounds like you're, you're solid, you're transparent, you're, you're, you're well thought out. Unfortunately, I don't believe every teacher is like you. So, Claudia, as an administrator, as a board member, how did you feel about that? You, you give curriculum to your teachers, but they may just teach slavery for six weeks and they may teach you with, know it with, with it less enthusiasm because hell, maybe they actually are racist. And that, and that, was, that was true. Um, we, we did find that there were personal, um, um, I, you know, I don't wanna go against one party or another, but there is, you know, at the time there's, there was a political, there's a political party in the United States that's very like anti-immigrant. And so that plays out also. What we did find is that we had a lot more conservative teachers in one, in one school more so than in other. And that those political factions were also coming into how they were teaching the content specifically in history, which was an issue for us because what we realized was who was ever was picking the books, because we have to go back, how are we giving these initial lessons to the students? And the initial lessons were coming through the textbooks that were being um, taught. So we went to see which textbooks were being taught for some of the history courses, civilizations, all of that. Some of the books had been purchased in 1985. 
some of them had been purchased in 1963 and never been updated that had a certain bent to them. So the initial introduction to the topic was such that was it was there was a certain criteria that was being driven and then carried along. So what we needed to do was to then come in critically and actually start looking at the textbooks with teachers of history, with, you know, doctors of curriculum and, you know, just like take these apart, right? And start looking at, okay, what what is the underlying message that's happening in the textbooks? Because if, if the textbook is driving a certain criteria or a certain way of thinking of looking at something, are we providing um, an opportunity for the students to think differently or to look at themselves differently or to start even understanding the, to, to be introduced to a concept in certain ways? What we found was we need to buy new textbooks first before we could do anything. So we changed a lot of the textbooks that were being given to the teachers. So that when the teachers went to work with the material, and the other thing is we said, okay, you're not having one textbook. We want two or three. We wanna make sure that you're coming from different aspects, you know? And, and most of the teachers, that's exactly what they wanted. Some of them were capable of doing it. And some of them had a lot of pushback because they were so used to doing it in a certain way, us coming in and saying, we really need to look at what the perspective that the introductory perspective given to students is how how is that going to impact how the students think about themselves how they see themselves and how they understand history and that was where we started really like getting into the weeds and starting to change um how how we were going to actually have the delivery of history in the district Claudia, let's talk about and let, let's let's further your point around, you know, you, you, you and I want to focus on student outcomes, right, because mm -hmm. we want to help our most vulnerable student populations. So let's let's talk about in this particular context, students of color. We talked okay. about your district with primarily uh, Latino African-American students. Yes. You've picked a couple of different books. You've evaluated the curriculums. What are the next steps, Claudia, once that has happened? that you can leave your, you talked about, you did an equity study. Mm -hmm. what, were the, what were the outcomes of that study? If you, if you don't mind helping us understand, because sure. what we want to do is we have educators listening to this podcast who are saying, right. we might not have ever thought about the fact that our curriculum inadvers inadvertently or, or purposely impacts our students of color, whether it's their self-esteem, whether it's their knowledge of, of, of the of history of America, whether it's the, the, the contribution that students of color or people of color have made to this tapestry of the United States. Right. Whatever the case may be, you've gone through this equity study, you've decided to change books. What are, the, what are some of the other lessons learned, Claudia, that others can, can, can benefit from, especially when it comes to supporting those students of color, learning these histories, whether it's, you know, Asian American history, where is Latino history, where is African American studies, et cetera. Let's talk about how we can not just pick better books, better right. curriculum, and right. how it's taught to benefit those students because it makes a difference in their lives. Like I said, in, in an article from the, 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 the Atlantic, the board member in Evanston said, this is disempowering to students of color. And the question is, how do we empower students of color with yeah. the choices we make on how we teach African-American history, uh, Latino history, et cetera, um, in that context? Okay. So here's, here's we, we, let's look at like the inclusive climate. So we wanted to see, okay, 
how are we with inclusive climate, right? Because the climate of your of your district there is is going to be now. There's there's a lot of hostility, and there's a you know we're the place where friend Hampton comes from from Proviso East. So we, um, you know, our Proviso is rich with um, history and inequity. Uh, on, on many levels, we can talk about the economic, we can talk about the racial, we can we, we, we can go the gamut. But we, so, so we have to see what we're doing right and what we were doing wrong. So some of the things that we found is we found, like, for example, 70% of uh, think that staff are intentional in honoring cultural differences. And then 73% agree that the staff treat diversity as an asset. Um, 81% agreed that staff promoted social acceptance amongst all students. And that was from the student population. That's, this is what kids believe. Then less than half, like 45% of the students agreed that the staff in their school treated diversity as an asset and not a deficit. Um, however, 40% were neutral and 14% disagreed altogether. Then how do we, uh, the positive relationships we're talking about, right? Then another um, uh, another another point that we found was less than half, 47%, agreed that the students have at least one adult mentor in school, while 60% of our students agreed that they had an adult mentor. And then nearly half of our students, 49%, agreed that staff members mentor beyond the classroom. So we needed to look at relationships because in order for us, in order for you to actually get a point across or in order for you to actually mentor or to teach the children, it's relationship building. So we had to see, we had to start with, do we even have these staff and student relationships? And we did, but did we have to still improve them? Yes. And you know, what we then went into, what are our disciplinary practices? How was that impacting? Because these things were important for us to be able to move forward with getting buy-in. Because if we don't have buy-in by the students and by the staff, by our teacher body, by our faculty, you know, we weren't going to go anywhere. And what we really, what we realized was there were huge inequities. Even though we had improved with restorative practices, our disciplinary practices were definitely inequitable. For example, total of school um, in school suspensions we had 322. Of those, 243 were black, and 77 were Hispanic. Wow, our eye opening right there. So what's happening, right? And then our out-of-school suspensions, we had 70. So out of those out-of-school suspensions, and this is just from one high school, from Proviso East, um, 60 were Black and 10 were Hispanic. None from other, and we didn't have any issues with any of the other at, at that particular point. And so, you know, we, we started looking at Proviso West, and we saw the same inequities. And that was, that, that was a, a, a big problem. Um, for um, for us to even you know start dealing with, so we had to go to those key points to bring up a lot of these inequities and go from there, so that we could have a review. What we realized is, in order for our curriculum and our initiatives to really take root, and for us to really be able to be successful, we needed to promote incl an inclusive climate. Um, we were going to need to improve restorative disciplinary practices for all of our students, so our, our students would trust us, because trust is a huge issue. 
so that we could actually get to a point where they're going to want to learn and they want to participate. Um, we wanted to increase access to high quality, culturally relevant curriculum for all of our kids. And that meant including, um, you know, how uh, uh, history needed to touch reality that they're living today, right? Whatever they're learning, if it's not, if there's no, like, I can touch it, I can feel it, I know what you're talking about, so that it felt relative to them, it wasn't going to work. So we, we needed to make sure that it was relative. And then we had to increase student voice because leadership and engagement in decision-making for the student voice was going to be crucial for us to be able to have this curriculum, have buy-in with parents, with students, with teachers, and to make sure that we could drive hard initiatives to move forward with all of our administrators as well. Now, Claudia, there's, there's one thing, and I, I'm fortunate enough to be close to you when this process was happening. There's one <laughs> crucial piece um, that I think is very valuable that I, I believe you must share uh, with, with the audience today. And we all know that nothing can get done unless leadership is on the same page. So please uh -huh. speak to, you know, again, share with the makeup of your board, share, you know, this, how did this work to the point where you had everyone talking the same language around curriculum? You know, that in itself is, is, a, is a, a feat. Share with us how you brought everyone together. You know, you spoke to the inclusiveness, but really share, you know, the messaging and, and how you honed in to bring everyone to the table to say, hey, this is our priority right now. It was years of pushing and talking about what equity was. And at, because, because um, the, compo the composition of our board um, was, um, it was a very interesting political time where this district was completely controlled by um, the, by um, the mob and by, <laughs> um, they had a hard, um, <laughs> they had a hard grab on the economics of the, of the district. Right. And so there was a, a group of us that came in and we decided parents were taking over. So the narrative became about students and about the student life. And it became about what were the inequities that were really happening and it became real and it became moms and dads saying no, this is what my student is experiencing, this is what my child is experiencing. I was one of the first board members in 50 years to have their children ever go to the schools. I mean, that was huge. So, um, you know, live, li you can't lead in a place that you don't believe that the, the change is possible. So we had to believe that the change was possible. Yet we had, um, we have a, 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 a very ingrained African-American um, community that is um, really controlled a lot of the jobs and a lot of the um, ownership to the district. And since there's a changing dynamic in cultures, and now there's a shared cultural divide inside of the district, um, it was really important for us to come together and really do what Fred Hampton said was to create that, that rainbow coalition, to, to really live that, right? L live bringing together and, and really bring what is equity, right? Equity is addressing the needs of each population within our school to ensure that they are going to receive the best but, um, education that's going to lead them to the highest, their highest potential, right? So um, in doing that, um, we, we really started addressing basics first. And it was, we had to look at the physical plane, but we had to look at the educational experience. My experience came in the educational field as a teacher educator for the last 18 years. And um, 
I really went into social justice. I've I'm also been the co-chair for PASO, which is um, you know, the West Suburban Action Project, working for immigrant rights for the last um, 10 years of my life. Um, so I'd really brought that whole activist and equitable um, message in where, you know, we've been, I've been advocating for communities of color for, you know, such a long time. Um, in here and you know I, I i teach in europe and i teach in south america as well and so it's been a it's been a global initiative and bring that global experience in on how we actually communicate one of the things that we had to really struggle with first to be able to bring this is to actually communicate with the teachers because the teachers felt entitled to continue doing things the way that they were doing and um i really had to talk to them about the the teaching experience of so many of the teachers in scandinavia um in england in eastern europe and you know in chile where i've taught with the the poorest of i've never you know the level of poverty uh, I'd never seen anything like what I, I, I experienced in Southern Chile when I taught with teachers who, I mean, they were, but they were some of the most remarkable human beings. Now, bringing that lived experience in, as, as Preston was speaking, um, it, it opened up the, a possibility to start looking at these things. What happened was the pastors in our, it's not a complete success story. It's a little bit difficult and a little challenged at this time. Um, a lot of the pastors in our area had a clear vision of what they saw Black Lives Matter meaning and, and, and living and um, have really driven two of our Black um, board members um, to, to, to um, bring Black Lives Matter meaning we only address curriculum for African-American boys. And that um, narrative was started to gain traction because of political um, affiliations. And that has kind of paralyzed a little bit of the, a lot of this process, which you know was six years in the work working, which has been disheartening to say the least. But you know it's, it doesn't mean that it stopped and it's, it will never come back because it, the process was initiated. Um, What's difficult about that is that um, even though people can come in with the best of intentions as board members, board members don't have the same regulation or intention always. And, and there's a lot of power in certain districts that power and, uh, and contracts can take over what is best for children and students. And that is the, the harsh reality that I think a lot of school boards are struggle with nationwide so they basically scrapped all of our equity work and they scrapped all of our initiatives and all of our alliances with the universities to retool a lot of the the, the cultural curriculum that was being the, the black lives matter and the latino curriculum and you know all of it. we really we were looking for equity we were looking for asian we were going for every single one of the minority groups to be represented humanely and and equitably in the district and and for us to only for uh, focus on this one sliver. That has brought um, us to add a period to our current district where every child has to learn um, African-American history. Now, in what we have now learned, you know, through the research that we did is that is not the most effective way of doing it. Because what we're finding is a lot of the teachers decided, 
you know, I don't have to really teach this as much because now it's going to be addressed in that class. But that class is one semester in their whole high school experience. And so what we know historically is that that's not going to ingrain and it's not going to make them own what all the all the the rich history that all of our minorities need to learn about. And quite frankly, a lot of the Latino activists and a lot of the Latino leadership have learned from the black leadership because of the how vocal they are and the way that they've done it. And um, we're inspired. And so that partnership has been fantastic. Unfortunately, there are some people, um, you know, in the in this black in the black um, leadership that we have who do not want to have any Latinos involved in any way, shape, and form, and want to drive and do it only with only black leading it. And I believe that that um, you know excluding and dividing doesn't bring us to what really Black Lives Matter is, which is integrity and equity for every so, child in a district. I, I agree. You know what? This is this is the reason why, and this is my personal opinion, I'll put that out there. We need to get rid of local school boards. Should not be in the business of educating children if they're no. not educators or if they're not in, versed in making decisions that impact students and education, point blank period. You have people making decisions um, with no college degree or no, uh, sometimes even GED, or I mean, high school diploma, and you got people on the other side who have doctorates in education. Exactly. And we're, we're, going, we're going to take the vote over this person who spent a, a lifetime in getting an education to actually make decisions uh, around you know, uh, these competencies. So this brings me to one of the core issues in, in our article that this, this conversation is based off today. And I really wanna throw this question to Preston. And Preston, I'm gonna set you up. I'm gonna give you the quote here in the background. And it says, the, 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 the reporter is asking of the, the, the board member uh, uh, in the Illinois School District, um, does it, he says, does it rankle you? Does it, does it bother you as a Black person when people define white culture with positive stereotypes, such as showing up to places on time? And the board member responds, that's exactly how I feel. The education system tends to erase or mute Black people from different backgrounds and experiences. They make this assumption that all black people are monolith. They all speak the same way, think the same way and conduct themselves in the same way. Preston, drill down and share more about your thoughts to the education teaching, the education field teaching black history as if black people are monolith. Thoughts on that statement? Yeah, I mean, that's actually part of what I try to deconstruct, you know, is that people understand what the diversity of blackness is, you know, and you know, that even within our own community, you know, there's a, a such a degree of diversity because, you know, there's those of us who came from slavery and Jim Crow in this country. And then there are those of us who uh, who moved to this country from Africa, some people who moved to this country from the West Indian islands, but they're still considered black, you know, but so I think that is, you know, my, my whole one of my guiding philosophies is I try to clear up misunderstandings. And so whether it's the misunderstandings of uh, of history, whether it's misunderstandings about how race and, and class and gender uh, can affect us. That's, you know, that's really what I'm all about, you know, so 
so okay, uh, just as a case in point, you know, we we, uh, we, we talked about you know, um, or Claudia mentioned a teacher, you know, teaching the slave teaching slavery for six weeks, and so um, I was teaching uh, my my history class this year. We did the transatlantic slave trade. We spent three days on it though. The first day was just for people to understand uh, the middle passage. Like, what was that like? What was that like to, to be on that ship? What were the conditions like? How did it affect people who were on the ship? You know, white, enslaved, whatever. Then there was another lesson which looked at, okay, this is what some African leaders tried to do to stop the slave trade and, you know, look at the varying degrees of success they had. Cause you know, for me, I'm all about context. To me, context is everything. Then on the third day of the lesson, I said, okay, this is what, this is what resistance looked like. Um, resistance on the slave trade, uh, you know, development of maroon communities in, in, in the Caribbean and North America. That's, that's, this is what resistance to that whole system looked like. So I, I wanted my students to get um, and again, three days, it didn't take six weeks, you know, to look at, um, you know, clearing up misunderstandings about, you know, how slavery in Africa functioned versus slavery that we saw in the Americas. Like how, what was different about that? Cause you know, one of the misunderstandings that people have is that, oh, well, you know, there was slavery in Africa. So how come, how come, you know, slavery wasn't so bad? Yes, yeah, they've always had slavery. And you know, we we got to understand that yes, yes, there was has always been slavery, but this kind of slavery that we saw in the Americas was unique in the annals of history, and here's why. So, so my thing is just really providing that context for the students so that they don't have these misunderstandings. And I, I love the fact, and this is the first time in in my teaching career that I've taught white students. You know, so I've got um, you know racially diverse classes in terms of, you know, like maybe about half the students are white, about half the students are African-American. Uh, I've never had a situation like that. I've mostly taught African-Americans, uh, Hispanic Latinos, Arabs. So this is my first time teaching, you know, part of the majority population. And I'm so thankful that I've been able to because I want them in particular too to understand like, this is what the actual history was like. So, so, so Preston, let's talk about that. How do sure. we, Claudia talked about engaging and empowering all students. Can you provide um, some context so that we can think about um, how we can provide a more balanced educational experience for all students in that classroom? That's tricky. Um, that is tricky. So I don't know that one teacher can be all things to all students. And um, I've, you know, I've long pushed back against this um, throughout my teaching career. But I, for me personally, I'd like to think that I try to focus on uh, multiple intelligence theory uh, developed by Dr. Howard Gardner, which is essentially that we all have different ways that we're smart. You know, some people are smart by you know, moving around. Some people are smart by manipulating objects with their hands. Some people are smart musically. Some people are, are smart. I mean, there's basically many ways that we can show mastery um, of, a, of, a certain of a certain subject area. So for me, I, I think that if we try to address learning styles, different learning styles and try to address uh, different, uh, maybe think outside, think differently about how we assess mastery I think that'll go a long way towards benefiting all learners. You know, I don't necessarily know that there is 
a particular method that would suit all students at the same time uh, in real time. You know, I, I think that in, in many ways we have to tailor our curriculum to the unique needs of a particular school population. Um, so that's that's a really tough question, you know. And you know this, and, and I understand that you know as a as an educator, I'm responsible for teaching you know all students. But the reality of it is, is that you know you 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 can't be all things to everybody. Like I said earlier, you can't be all things to all students. So I think you try your best to address the different lear learning modalities, um, you know, just unconventional ways to assess mastery. Um, yeah bring in, bring in those, make sure you, you, you bring in those marginal, those historically marginalized voices, but I don't want to do it in a way that makes them feel like victims. I want to do it in a way that where they can kind of draw strength and inspiration from. <laughs>